Hello everybody, my name is Paul Dolsky, and you are listening to, once again, another exciting episode for the Women of Horror Month, and with me today is none other than the lovely lady that is doing the uh, latest campaign for Kickstarter of, um, well, she's going to just have to just, I guess, correct me nonetheless, because I don't really know how else to put this, but it's a steampunk uh, I don't know if this is like a standalone or if this is some sort of continuation, but that's where she can correct me of her uh, series, uh, Boston Metaphysical Society, and her latest one that is going to be coming out because it did get in, uh, funded on Kickstarter and is now unlocking stretch goals as well. And for the first time ever, you can also get a coloring book for the Boston Metaphysical Society. And with us is none other than the writer-creator, Madeline Holly Rosen. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Good. I did pronounce your name right, right? Yes, you did. It's perfect. Absolutely perfect. Sweet. Well, I'm usually pretty bad with names because I have a small speech impediment, so sometimes some names will take me a couple tries. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. You got it. You got it. Well, Madeline, thank you for your time, uh, for coming on for the show, and happy Women in Horror Month, because I don't know if you even knew that, because quite frankly, I didn't know such thing existed until uh, last year, so. No, I think I heard about it uh, last week, because I, I, do, I do know a number of uh, female horror writers, so they were, they were, they've been talking about it on Facebook, so it's been pretty cool. Yeah, it is, and I like what they do, too, for every year, and I can't believe it was, it's been on for, like, 11 years, and I'm like, really? How come I just heard about it now? So, or, what? well, last year, but, yeah. It, it's nice, a little change-up. Yes. Yes. And, um, so, Madeline, before, to kick things off, uh, so, tell me a little bit about yourself, because I know, like, you, you're into the steampunk, you, you're you into, like, the horror, the paranormal, and uh, historical aspects of, like, um, oh, God, what would be the correct term for this? Almost like it would write the past, but the future... Al- alternate history. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's just clever enough. Uh, well, not <laughs> clever, but you know what I mean. Yes, <laughs> it <yeah>. fits. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, um... Just to let your audience know, in, in case they have never heard of Boston Metaphysical Society before, the overall series is about an ex-Pinkerton detective, a spirit photographer, and a genius scientist who battles supernatural forces in late 1800s Boston. We started with a six-issue miniseries, uh, which we finished a few years ago. Emily Hugh was the artist for that. And since then, after we, we took it to trade, so it's all in one volume now. And since then, we have produced three standalone sequels. The first one being Scourge the Mechanical Man. The second one was Spirit of Rebellion. And what we currently have on Kickstarter right now is one called Ghosts and Demons. And they do all link, but yes, they, they are all standalone. And we are fully funded and actually going into stretch goal number five right now. So pretty excited about that. Yeah, that is a big accomplishment, and I was lucky enough to find out about your 
project last year when um, the other Kickstarter campaign that was going at the time, I believe, unless they were already yeah. ended, but uh, the Irons Anthology. So. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's how you got a backer from, uh, well, that's how I backed your project was through them, really, because they mentioned it, and so I was just like, hmm, I'll take a look at this, and then that's when I was intrigued, and um, that's when I messaged you to figure out the uh, whole collection thing, so that way I kind of could, you know, not start somewhere where I'll probably get confused or something, <laughs> so. Yeah, I wrote a uh, a short sequential art story for the Einz anthology that I think might be in the second volume. It's not in the first volume, but I think in the probably in the second volume. So hopefully uh, uh, sometime in the near future, you know, we'll get to see that one come to life because that one was a lot of fun to to write. Um, but yeah, my idea with writing the standalone sequels is I never have any idea how people are going to enter into the series. I mean, you could just be at somebody's house and have a copy of Scourge of the Mechanical Men or something and, you know, sit down to read it. And I want people to have an enjoyable experience um, and a complete story, but have enough open-endedness so we can keep going and have more story later on. Very cool. I was going to ask, like, uh, is, is there any type of way that you are going about writing these stories anyway? Or is it one of those where I kind of hear a lot from people where they don't really have an idea? It's just more of like, let's see where uh, I'll get the, I, I don't want to say writer's block, but like the writing really goes like with the flow, I guess. So is that what, going on here is like you're just kind of going with what would be best or what um would maybe help tie into the story because i guess what i'm trying to figure out is ghost and demon is mm -hmm. this sort of like the continuation after the spirit of rebellion yes yes yeah. Yes, um i do add a prologue and an introduction to the book so you can get caught up um, but you could just start reading it and, and you'll get it. Um, I mean, you'll understand the story, no problem, but it just adds, it just enriches the story. And as far as your, uh, previous question is, I pretty much have an, I have an overall plan for the series, but often I will take, you know, little detours when you know something happens with a character and and just just something tells me that i i need to go forward on on something that you know a character has done um in a in a maybe in a previous story uh which is kind of what happened with ghosts and demons ghosts and demons is inspired by a short story that i wrote um, a few years ago called here by monsters that was published in an, in an anthology called Sometime Later by Thinking Inc. Press. And it was uh, Duncan the Ghost's origin story. And you meet Duncan early in the original six-issue miniseries, but I decided early on that at some point I needed to write Duncan's story of, you know, how he became a ghost. 
So that's what that story is. And what I did was take a character from that story and put it in Ghosts and Demons, which essentially bookends the two stories. Uh, the way I write, every there's linkage in every story. They may be a complete story into itself, but there's little things that link it to other stories that I've written that either in prose or in comic format that just enriches the whole experience for the reader. Fair enough. I like that. I like the, um, I definitely thought when I started with the miniseries, would, like you were mentioning, it became into like a whole trade paperback, which was nice. And I believe it came with like a, would that the pro? Uh, I, I don't have it in front of me right now because I have way too many things like, to go <laughs> find it. But uh, it did come with like a small little prologue in that one too, right? Or some sort of like. Yeah, uh, the, I, yeah I, I know what you're talking about. Um, the trade paperback has an exclusive uh, short story in it called Hunter Killer. Yes. And. Uh, yeah, there I introduce three new characters, and what happens there is uh, actually occurs about 30, 35 years prior to that um, miniseries, and is the start of what I call the House Wars, which is the equivalent of the American Civil War. It's essentially, Hunter Killer is an airship battle, which is my equivalent of Fort Sumter where the Civil War started. Wow. And that's actually linked into another novel I'm rewriting right now, which is going to be a, a trilogy. It's called House Wars, and it's essentially the first year or so of the, um, of the Civil War. But in, in the Boston Metaphysical Universe, it's against the northern houses and the southern houses as opposed to states. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that was another thing I was noticing is, like, your story definitely had that feel of a histor historical view, especially with, like, Tesla and all the mechanical um experiment that were going on especially with the way they talk and how they uh what's the word i want to say um to kind of like interact with the world around them if that yeah. makes sense so that's what really i want to say grab my attention besides the whole paranormal aspect but I just like the, I like seeing stuff where you take, like, historical things and you throw it in and make something out of it versus, like, uh, coming up with somebody new and trying to say, like, you know, this is history, but it's not history, if that makes sense, too. Because it's, it's weird like that, but um, it's also neat to see... Uh, cause I'm assuming, cause I actually, no, not assuming, I think I asked you, is, don't you do research when it comes to the, uh, I don't know if I want to say the writing or the events of what's going I, on. Yeah, I, I do, I do a lot of research, um, on, on history and people, 
in the original six-issue miniseries, there are historical figures present. Um, they are an integral part of the storyline, and they are Bell, Edison, Tesla, and Houdini. And the African-American gentleman, Granville Woods, who is part of the Boston Metaphysical team, is a historical figure as well. Um, I found him in my research and really liked what I saw and made him part of the team. The characters of Samuel Hunter and Caitlin O'Sullivan, they are fictional. Very nice. Very cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> now, um, when you came into this with the paranormal thing, uh, just out of like a personal question, too, and because usually anything paranormal I got to ask anyway, but do you, are you a believer in the actual paranormal? Uh, actually, no. <laughs> ah, ah. Um, Hey. No, no, I'm not, but I love stories about it, um, and it really, you know, it, it excites my imagination, and I just really like dealing with it, because you get to deal with an imaginary world, but yet you can reflect world, real-world events within it, and it's just, it's just a nice way to world-build. Um, and I, and myself personally, I just find it extremely entertaining. It's, it's fun. Uh, but yeah, you don't necessarily have to believe in it to have, you know, fun with it and be imaginative in it. No, there's nothing wrong with that answer. I was just curious because you, no, I've, I've, I've had, I've had people ask me that before. Um, oh yeah. And, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's always just interesting to me because, like, some people will find it interesting, and then there's people that go, yeah, it, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fine either way. But, uh, no, I actually had some weird um, experiences that happened to me, so that's why I don't think there's, you know, there's just no way uh, we are the only things around that we can't really see either, so I definitely think there is more than what we cannot see, but we just have to search more behind the naked eye, I guess would be the proper term, I think. Um, but, yeah, and but but to take the, the contrary point of view, I actually think that science eventually will be able to explain all of that. Uh, since we do have limited, as human beings, we do have limited vision. Um, we can't see, you know, all the color spectrums. We can't see a lot of things because of our own limitations. But yet, I think the human brain is capable of amazing things that we have yet to even discover. I mean, since we only use a small portion of our brain now, you know, imagine what it would be like if we used even, we could use even 5% more. So. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, we are even using the full brain, and if we were using the full brain, I mean, like you just said, like, how much of a difference is there, really? So, and they always say, too, with kids, that we, or the kids are more 
develop in any way extent they're young and stuff where as you grow older and stuff we kind of start to oh, i forget that word like i really forget the technical way that they call it but as you grow up it's like we lose more of the uh the usage of our brain so like it's like we think we don't use that that section, I'll just say, um, of the brain, it kind of just locks it because we just don't use it. And then um, as we grow older, it's just like we uh, don't really have that ability like we probably did when we were younger. So it's, it's, it's always interesting to see and hear stories, too, about little kids and their uh, imaginary friends, whether there really is an imaginary friend there or not, or <laughs> stuff like that. So it's always, it's always cool. Absolutely. Yeah, I do try to add uh, accurate science whenever I can. And unfortunately, I can't a lot of times because the story... Um, and story development, character development wins out, but uh, there will always be little tidbits in the comic of, of, of real science, and um, I, particularly in issue two of the original miniseries, Granville is um, in his lab, and he discovers a substance called yttrium barium oxide, and, of course, Samuel and Caitlin look at him cross-eyed, not understanding what, uh, what it is. But, uh, you know, a chemist or someone is going to understand what that residue is. So that's kind of, I put that in for them. And so whenever I can do that, I do that because it's fun. And it also, well, grounds, it also grounds the science, too. Right, and it helped you think more, too, for somebody like me that's not really knowledgeable in the science, but, I mean, it's always cool to open somebody else's mind more and be like, oh, that makes sense, or it makes them or me kind of stop reading for a minute and, you know, do my own investigation just to just look, you know, look it up online just to kind of you're like, oh, okay, so that's what she means by uh, blank of whatever part I'm reading in your book. So that way it helps yeah. make me feel like, okay, that's where you can see her her research. So that way it's like it all makes sense and everything else. Which... Yeah, because if, if you're not familiar with the substance and you go Google it and you go like, oh, that's a real thing. That's cool. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's why I like real thing. <laughs> That's why I like reading your uh, the Boston Metaphysical because it's like you put so much real things in there that really does or should make other people kind of stop reading and do the research, which is nice because usually it's just like, oh, you're done and that's it. <laughs> you know what I mean? The question yeah. is, are the answer is already there? So why? Do you need to question it even more? It's already answered. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just interesting, nonetheless. But out of curiosity, what kind of started you to want to create a comic anyway? Uh, I kind of fell in it almost by accident. 
I had originally written Boston Metaphysical as a TV pilot while I was at UCLA Film School. I was in the MFA program in screenwriting. And a friend of mine, it was, originally it wasn't steampunk at all. It was just a, like a period paranormal detective story. And a friend of mine suggested I turn it into steampunk, which I had heard of but hadn't really read much. So I researched that, realized they were right, redeveloped it, and uh, sent it off to some competitions and around, and it got good feedback, but, you know, this was over 10 years ago, so steampunk really hadn't gone mainstream, and it's expensive to make because of costuming and all that other fun stuff. So uh, it was suggested to me that I turn it into a graphic novel to use it as essentially marketing to go back and sell it to to TV or film or something like that, but which I did. But in the meantime, I fell in love with writing comics. So here I am. <laughs> you guys are stuck with me, like, forever. Well, um... Yay! <laughs> I'm not trying to say yay as in like, oh boy, we're in for it now. But yay! No, I, I, as long as long as you're giving us the based on the real things and it comes out to be a great story, then yeah, I can't wait to see the next story. I mean, when I got done reading all of your stuff, when I when I was uh, reviewing them for our site at the time, I was like, "Man, I can't wait for the next for the next one, whatever happens next." So, and then yeah, I think yeah, you... and Gwen Gwen Tavares uh, is the artist for the three sequels. She took over from Emily, and um, that's because Emily. Well, Emily moved on to bigger and better. She's doing storyboards for Nickelodeon and Warner Brothers and other places, uh, but. You know, Gwen, I I loved working with both of them, and, and Gwen has been terrific. And like any good artist, she gets better with every issue. So it's been pretty awesome working with her. Yeah, and she has, I can't even express, like, the artwork that she brings out, especially for the other, uh, bleh, wow, what was I just about to say? The other comic series that I know her from, too. Because I didn't realize she was actually uh, part of your universe. Because um, I've known her for the Amelia Sky one, and yeah. and then when I noticed that she was doing your stuff too, I was like, "Wow, she can really like go in between so many different type of stuff that she could basically do it all." Yeah, she's, she can go through, through a bunch of different styles, and uh, I, th I think mine, mine is the most detailed. I mean, she, she impresses the hell out of me constantly. I, I mean, early on, when she, was, you know, when she first came on board and was doing the first sequel, she was doing research onto men's socks in the late 1800s and women's shoes, and so, you know, all... Everything is correct, you know, from the amount of buttons on the shoes to the designs on the socks to everything. So, um, yeah, she's she's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, she, like, I can't give her enough credit. She, she, I'm surprised, like, I never really seen a lot more of her stuff. As far as I know, it's just um, your series and Amelia Sky. So I don't know what else she has done or is doing. So I need to find out more of her work so I can really get more of her uh, artwork thrown at my face, really, <laughs> see what else she really can do, so. Yeah, she does, uh, um, I know she does a lot of pinups also for uh, various Kickstarters. Um, she, I mean, there's one, one thing I, I, I'm always happy to say that, uh, you know, artists and who, who've worked with me, have usually, you know, gone on to bigger and better, and they always get other work, because, as you've seen, I, I do a lot of promotion, I'm, I'm out there a lot, I do a lot of Comic-Cons, so people see their work, and so they get hired for other stuff, which, you know, thrills me to death, of course, as, as long as it doesn't interfere with, with my own stuff. <laughs> It's like, yes, Gwen, you can do whatever you want as long as you finish my work first. But um, I'm just like every other creator that way. Well, that makes sense. I mean, you know, it's your project. You want to get it done and out there. And in this case, you definitely want to get it out there because you're running a campaign and you don't want to upset your customers, I think would be the best way to put it. Your backers, really, because I even though Kickstarter is not a store, but it's still nice to, I guess, call it a customer because they believe in your work enough that they pre-order it. Yeah, I, I mean, and, yeah, and she's, I mean, she's done with the, with the art. I mean, I'm reviewing the lettering right now, so it will probably go to my pre-press guy in, in a day or two. Um, oh, so, even does lettering too. Sorry for interrupting. Oh, oh, yeah, no. As it's, uh, people who've been with me for for a while know that everything is usually ready to go to the printer by the end of the campaign, and this is no exception. This is no exception. <laughs> so yeah, it's as soon as the money clears, it's off to the printer. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I couldn't really remember that far back. For That's okay. That's okay. But, but, you know, some people, which I wish a lot of people did that, to be honest. Like, what you do, like another company does for their comic, where, you know, like you just said, once the money clears, they send it to the press, uh, printer, and then uh, the next thing you know, you just get that uh, email that just says, hey... Your stuff is heading to you, so thanks again and all that stuff. And then it's just like, oh, nice. Now I don't have to wait almost a year later for some other project that are like, dude, what the, what is going on here? Yeah, in, in fact, our next stretch goal, uh, if we make it, I think we will, because we do have 14 days left, but um, is that will give us enough money to be able to print in North America as opposed to overseas, which cuts like a good month out of waiting. So, um, you know, that, that's my goal is, is I really want to make that stretch goal so everybody gets their books earlier. Ah, because of, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I did see that, and uh, and kind of like what you just said. You got two weeks left. I don't see any reason why you can't hit it. So yeah, I, I I I think we will. I I think we will. Um, it's just yeah, it's like oh, fourteen more days to go. Yeah, <laughs> just like ah, oh, fourteen. Just come on already. <laughs> uh yeah, it's always fun though, and you've done. Eight pro, uh, eight Kickstarters, and you've also published like, uh, what was it called? The Kickstarter for the Independent Creator book. I want to say too. Yes. Right? Yes, that is correct. I have uh, one nonfiction book, um, and as you said, it's called Kickstarter for the Independent Creator. Uh, I wrote it a few years ago because I saw a lot of great projects on Kickstarter doing the crash and burn because the creators just simply weren't ready to launch. And so it's essentially a field guide to running a crowdfunding campaign. And it is, uh, the references of course are to comics, but the strategies are the same for any project. Um, I go over like pre-launch strategy, campaign strategy, fulfillment, um, how to fill the, you know, how to how to find your backers. Um, there's resources in in the back, uh, but yeah, that's that's on. You can get either a, um, a paperback copy or an ebook copy, you know, through Amazon or you know, any any ebook platform you're on. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have told me they found it to be very helpful and have helped them succeed because it really is a step-by-step guide. So say you already have, you know, your fan base, you have a really good email list in hand, you've been doing a lot of cons, uh, so that part you have in hand, so, you know, you can start at, you know, pre-launch strategy and starting to get all those things lined up. Hmm. That's that's interesting. I'm gonna have to look into that now. So, because as you know, I want a Kickstarter last year for the for your for your short, right? Yeah, for my short horror film, which surprisingly it did fun. But I mean, I, I was talking with a couple other people too, and they're just like, "Well, what if you message the other people that you actually back?" and see if they will, you know, uh, back your project for helping their stuff come back to life. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I like that idea, but because I'm not one that really just say, like, hey, uh, I'm not trying to say, like, give me, (laughs) like, I I guess what I'm trying to, like, thinking of is, like, I don't want to say, like, hey, because I gave you money, can you give me money? It's like, Okay, well, how do I make it sound like I don't want to be that type of um, uh, guy that just says, hey, you know, I'm that guy that brought your project to life. How do I do it? So I know I messaged you about it, and, like, I, like I sent, like, a mass message to, like, everybody that I could, like, message across all the projects that I did. So I – and I do uh, – Thank you, dear well, madam. You're, you're, you're welcome. Excellent. You know what I what I would suggest, and uh, for the future, and what I have found to be um, a win-win for 
for uh, creators is swapping uh, promotional update posts. Um, like for instance, uh, I you know, or if you find someone who you think there's there's these two games that are going on in my latest update. I actually plug two games um, that have steampunk themes in them, and mm -hmm. they're essentially swaps. So they will mention me in their Kickstarter update because they have an audience who we both believe would be interested in mine and, and, and vice versa. Um, that's actually more beneficial than asking people who have, you know, you have backed for money because you're going to get more eyeballs on your project. And unfortunately, and this is kind of the, the dark side of Kickstarter, uh, someone may back you, but then their credit card doesn't go through when at the end of the campaign. Right. Because I've actually been, you know, when people say like, oh, I'll back you if you back me. Oh, and no. I don't do that anymore because I've gotten stiffed. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that's why, you know, no money crosses hands anymore. But what I will do is, you know, hey, you know, Paul has this great horror thing going on, short film, you know, do a little blurb and here's the link to his project. And, you know, you whoever picks up, whoever reads the update, if they're interested in it, they'll go click through and take a look and decide for themselves. But um, you're going to get a lot more eyeballs on your project that way. Right. And I guess listening to you now, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to exactly word this, but if you're going to put a plug um, another project, which I like the idea because, like you just said, it helped, you know, find another project that somebody might be interested in because they didn't hear about it or whatnot. And would that be because you yourself backed it and then you mentioned them? Or no, no I, I don't necessarily back them. No, it's, 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 it's called cross-promotion. It's a marketing technique. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, many of us do it. I'm sure you have backed, uh, particularly in the comics world, I'm sure you have read updates from comics you've backed, and, you know, at the top of the update, you have the information from the creator of, like, what's going on, where they're at, and then uh, towards the bottom of the, the update, it'll say, like, hey, I also, there's these other projects going on that you may or may not have backed, and say like that might be of interest to your audience like these two games they make perfect sense for my audience they're both steampunk themed i went and checked them out they looked really fun they looked really interesting and so i think my audience would actually benefit from yeah. knowing about them and then they my audience my backers can take a look make their own decisions and uh and then they do the same for me yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then when they back, they can tell uh, that net or that new project that you just mentioned, like, "Hey, I found you guys think to so and so in a way." So, and then they'll be like, "Oh, cool!" And then they'll maybe you know check out yours because 
you got a couple people messaging that new project that you just plugged in or network with cross promoting and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're keeping it in the same genre, so that makes sense too. Yeah, yeah. And we we contact each other. Um, both both of the games uh, creators actually contacted me, and. Uh, I said, and before I even responded to them, I went and checked out the game to see if it was appropriate because I won't promote any, you know, it's got to be PG-13, you know, I don't want any, you know, overt sex and violence. Um, you know, it has to be appropriate for my audience. And yeah, yeah and I looked at them, they fine. I said, yeah, let's, cross, let's do this, let's cross promote. And uh, it's done. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. And that everybody wins. Everybody wins. It's a win-win for everybody. Well, I hope that my little short film wasn't too uh, violent for you then. Oh, no. It was fine. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. <laughs> but, no, that really does help a lot because, you know, when I was debating to do a Kickstarter, because at the time I wasn't really thinking of doing one, because I was like, uh, maybe I'll just do it myself, but then I see, like, all these great things about Kickstarter, and I know how people love the indie world, most of the time, anyway, um, it helped you get out there, too, and stuff like you, you have made a name for yourself with Boston, I know that for, your, for sure, and, like, I don't see how one project of yours can't be funded, because you do... Everything, like, to the dot. Like you mentioned earlier, once the money clears, you send it over to the printer, and then, you know, it comes back to you, and then you just get it out there. So it's never anything worried about. You're always on time, and, you you know, it's, there's nothing bad to say about what you do. So Well, thank you. I, I, I try very hard to... Um... You know, I'm very conscientious about delivering to the backers. They are essentially my customers, and I want them to have excellent customer service from me. They they know they can depend on me to deliver, and uh, so there's no no issue there. And I'm I'm really proud to be able to say that. Um, yeah, exactly. Like once you have the customers in in the grasp of your hand to. Uh, of your, oh, why am I brain farted right now? You know, your liability, because you are re, uh, reliable. Oh, no. <laughs> you're, you're good at it. You Like I said, you just have it. Thank you. Head. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Now I think we need to talk about the coloring book. <laughs> yes, the coloring book. The coloring book, yes. The first ever Boston Metaphysical Society coloring book is suitable for all ages and the illustrations are done by Alejandro Lee and I've known Alejandro for quite a while we met at probably some steampunk convention years ago I love his work uh, he has his own comic called uh, for kids called Piston Pete and Sally Sprocket it's very cute and I just knew that his style would complement Gwen and Emily's in um, a coloring book form. So I went ahead and talked to him. We, you know, worked out a budget, 
and he's off to the races. So he has, he's finished like 13 of the illustrations, so he only has seven more to go. So he should easily, he'll be done by the time we're, we're done. And uh, the pre-press on that shouldn't take much time. Um, but yeah, the illustrations, of course, include the main characters, Samuel, Granville, and Caitlin. But there will also be illustrations of Belle, Edison, Tesla, and Houdini, the Tesla tank, um, Caitlin's parents, the shifter, uh, some scenes, some Boston scenes, a lot of fun stuff. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> I had to upgrade my pledge for that way I could get the coloring book too because I know how much my fiance loves coloring. Uh. <laughs> so, so I'll just like, all right, I'll I'll upgrade to get the comic and the coloring book so I can just give her the coloring book. So, but <laughs> that hey, that 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 reward tier is a great deal. For twenty dollars, you get the you get Ghosts and Demons, you get the coloring book, and it includes postage. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes, that's a deal. That that <laughs> really is. <laughs> and there was something else. There was another uh, pledge that was actually a pretty good deal too. Now I know I I'm looking at it right now, so I can try to see which one it was. I think it was the uh, the catching up one too, where yeah. I think that's another one. And then you announced something about chocolates. Yes. I didn't read all of it. <laughs> Yeah, that I I um I uh, I know it. Uh, she's a steampunk author and a chocolatier. She's she's part of the steampunk community. Her name is Nikki Wolfolk, and she lives and works in Connecticut. And we've known each other. We've actually never met face to face, but we've known each other out online for years and and have chatted. And uh, last year, I wanted to do this with her, but we just couldn't get the the timing worked out. But this year we did, and so it is a limited tier of ten um, boxes, small boxes of chocolate. It's it's four pieces of a bittersweet chocolate with caramel filling, and uh, also a little bar of uh, chocolate with like a apple mosaic weaved into it, and a beautiful, beautiful box, and uh, also the book. Uh, that has that's for thirty six dollars. I mean, I think five out of the ten um, that we have are already taken. Um, but I'm very excited for her and to also to promote her. The I've done this in the past. Um, I haven't done that last couple Kickstarters just because of timing issues. But in earlier Kickstarters, I've worked with steampunk makers to create something specific for one of my Kickstarters as a way to give back to the steampunk community. They have been extraordinarily supportive of me and everything that I have done. And this way I'm able to give them, you know, a little more promotion than they may not normally have. And so it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. And I was really happy to get, to get Nikki on board this time. And her chocolate is really good. She she sent me samples, so they're good. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> well, and it is almost that time, even though um, it's going to be weight on it. But you could always, you know, get your weighty or your 
man, depending on, you know, who who'd buy in for who. Uh, some nice chocolate then for Valentine's Day, even though it's going to be over with. But hey, I mean, why not have that thought down the road when you get your lovely comic book and then you can read it and color with chocolate? Why not? <laughs> That sounds yes. like a great deal. <laughs> yes, yes, you can do that. The the chocolate will those who have ordered the chocolate tier, um, they will get their chocolate before their books. Um, I, I will be contacting them separately to get their addresses early to get them out, get that out to them. But as for the books and everything, they'll have to wait for the surveys to go out, and that'll that'll be a good month or so after you know after we finish well that makes perfect sense so that means just free the chocolate people and then wait <laughs> for your stuff and then eat them yeah <laughs> well um madeline before we wrap this up because i don't want to take uh too much more of your time either but because of uh the women in horror month um i'll ask does Women in Horror Month mean anything to you? I know you said you just recently heard about it, but I'm assuming you might have heard more of like what it's about and stuff, like celebrating women pretty much in the horror genre of how far they have come. Um, I, I, well, unfortunately, uh, women in horror still tend to get ignored, and and I think this is a way to acknowledge the fact that there are many amazing uh, women writers who are writing horror. And uh, I think some people, because of their preconceptions of what women should or should not be, have a hard time ha wrapping their head around the fact that women can write horror. And they can and they do it extremely well. Uh, I, I know a number of, of, yeah, they're great. And, and so I think it's just to promote the fact that they exist. Because I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, many horror writers are women. Yes. It's not just males having to dominate the entire whatever that they're doing. I mean, women can do it too, if not better. So, <laughs> I will I will say that because I've read some very interesting thing that women have either wrote or directed, and it's like, wow, like this is really good. And I don't think a man could have thought of this. So, that's my uh, opinion, and I'll stick to it. So, okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> Well, but, thank you very much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your time as well, Madeline. And uh, real quick, too, for uh, for future reference for people is uh, when the Kickstarter is over with, uh, how can they find you to keep up with updates? And where can people find copies of your comic series? Okay. Uh, the Kickstarter runs until the morning of Friday, February 21st, and uh, you can always go to my website at bostonmetaphysicalsociety.com or my Facebook 
page to sign up for my newsletter, which is only monthly, so it won't, you know, inundate your inbox and make you crazy. The uh, first six issues, uh, if people, if you're not into Kickstarter or anything like that, but want to check out the uh, the original six issue miniseries, you can ask your local comic book store to order it. Um, we were picked up by Source Point Press uh, a year or so ago, and were uh, in Diamond Previews World, uh, the individual issues last year. So we're actually yeah in comic book stores nationwide now, and the trade paperback will be in Previews World uh, March. So in just a couple weeks. So if yeah if Kickstarter is not your thing you can contact your local comic book store and ask them to order the trade paperback and that has all of the original six issues plus a bonus 10-page story. Very cool. And I will do my best to try to find as many links as possible for the episode description too so that way they should have it all there for them as well. But okay. once again... Once again, Madeline, thank you very much for your your time, and hopefully we can chat more in the future for uh, your upcoming projects and everything else. That would be great. Thank you very much, Paul. Well, thank you again, and for everybody else listening, thank you for sticking around, and make sure that you are tucked in to your bed because you just never know what type of ghosts are knocking on the window and what type of demons are scratching at your head. <laughs>